celebrate Jesus and mothers. And I want to tell you a story I'm a little hesitant to tell you because I'm afraid if I tell you this, you'll go digging up in the archives and you may, you may be disappointed. But Pastor Brian loves to see me brought down, so I'm going to do it for you tonight. In 2015, I preached on Mother's Day weekend. And it was the only time that I ever preached a message that I thought was so bad that as soon as the service was over, I ducked my head and headed for the parking lot. And I had people chasing after me going, Pastor Blake, Pastor Blake. And I was just kind of waving them off like, no, 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 I got to get home. And I got home and I sank down into my couch and I heard a knock on the door and it was Pastor Brian. I opened the door. He said, you okay? (laughs) No, I'm not okay. Mother's Day weekend, I'm pretty sure it was one of the worst messages I've ever preached. Now, I've sworn every year, they always ask me as a joke, hey, Mother's Day's coming up, do you want to do Mother's Day? And I always laugh and say, I'll never do Mother's Day weekend again, I'm not going to do it. Well, this year, I decided the monkey's coming off my back, okay? So I need your help if the sermon, all right. Well, shoot, y'all are clapping, now's the time to go ahead and pray and be dismissed. So I need your help tonight. If the sermon is lacking, give me some encouragement. Clap me on because if it starts going bad and you see the beads of sweat coming, that means I'm nervous and I can't go down that cliff again. So y'all got to bring me back if it starts to go off the rails, okay? Y'all with me tonight? I want to tell you a story and I was going to title this message, A Faithful Mother. And I think the message applies, but I've changed the title to A Faithful God for Faithful Mothers. And the story is coming from 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's about a woman named Hannah. Many of you know this story. If you grew up in church, if you've read your Bible before, you've probably read and remembered this story. It's a very simple story, but it's a relatable story. It's a story tonight for mothers. It's a story tonight for women who maybe aren't mothers. Maybe you don't have children. Maybe you have had children and tragedy has struck. But I don't want to pigeonhole tonight anybody. In fact, this message is truly... For anybody who finds themselves in an ongoing struggle and wonders if and when God's going to show up and what he's going to do. Anybody ever been there before? Where you struggle and you deal with the same thing over and over. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's something that was done to you. Maybe it's a hurt. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a hang-up. Now's going to be a good time to pitch 3D Life Recovery, which is meeting on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. It's for those types of people, of which I am included, Sundays at 5 p.m. This Sunday, we're not going to be meeting, so you can go spend time with your mom. You can apologize for all the stuff you did that you never got caught doing. So spend that time with your mom. We'll pick up next Sunday night at 5 p.m. But this story, it's about a mother, and it's about a woman who longed to be a mother. But the truth is, this story is relatable for anybody who has ever had to wait on God for deliverance and for hope and for peace. So I hope you can relate to this tonight. I want to read this story from 1 Samuel chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, you can read out of your Bible or we'll have the scriptures on the screen for you tonight. It says, there was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam. We're going to go with Jeroam. The son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. Thank goodness verses 2 through 13 are easier than verse 1. He had two wives. Well, no, that ain't easier. That's harder, all right? Mistake number one. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina or Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. So you see the struggle. The struggle for the man was that he had two wives. 
anybody ever asks you why all the old Jewish people in the Bible had multiple wives and God thought it was okay, God never said it was okay, God never told them to do it. This is something that guys thought was a good idea that turned out to be a very bad idea. Mother's Day is hard enough when you got one wife and one mother. Imagine if you got a bunch of wives, all right? This was a bad idea. He had multiple wives. And the indication is that because it lists Hannah first in verse 2, and then Panina, the indication is, when it says that Panina had children but Hannah had none, there's, there's sort of an indication here that Hannah was the first wife. Hannah was the wife of his youth. Hannah was his love. Hannah was the one that he was most fond for. But because she couldn't have children, it was customary and common, though not wise or prescribed by God, they would take multiple wives to ensure that they had children. Because in these days, being an Israelite was all about passing on the lineage. It was about growing the people. In the church today, some of us still do that myself included among those. If you have been wiser and planned ahead better than me, you may not have a whole group of Israelite children running around your house. But the way we grow God's kingdom today is we share our faith and we invite others to come into God's kingdom. Amen? So good news tonight. If you're not a parent and Mother's Day is a struggle for you, you're not excluded from this scripture. And you're not excluded from God's kingdom. In fact, the Bible teaches that it is of equal and perhaps even greater importance that people come to know the Lord than simply people being born. Amen? If you were here last week and you remember we had Danny and Kathy Ham, a couple from West Tennessee that we do ministry with down there, they have started a ministry. And this ministry is a pro-life ministry that is equipping young mothers to maintain their pregnancies, give birth to their children, but not only to give birth to the children, but to be pro-life in the sense that they actually give them an abundant life, that they're equipped to give them the life that Jesus has for them. Because church, if we're going to love people, it's not enough to see them be born. We've got to love them all the way to the foot of the cross. Amen? That's how we do it. That's how we do it. Now, there were some struggles here. Two wives is a struggle. Hannah is the centerpiece of this story, but Penina is a very important character. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Now, if you're like me and my wife, that's a struggle that we haven't known. We had children as quickly as we can get married. About nine months after we got married, eight if you ask Pastor Brian, but we're calling it nine, Toby was born, my first son. He got to come up here and lead worship for you tonight. And truly, just as much as it is a pleasure to be a father, it's an even greater pleasure to be a father of children who know and seek the Lord. Amen? Amen? And to lead others in seeking the Lord. There's no greater joy. And it's no mistake that we put the Ballots for Life Academy out tonight. Because we want to send the message to our community and to all you moms and dads and spiritual moms and dads in our community that Eastland Life Church is about children. It is about reaching, teaching, coaching, and leading children. And this is one of the ways that we are going to do it. Now, in this day, if you were a mother or a wife, rather, and you were unable to bear children, this was considered not only unfortunate, this was not only a painful thing, and those of you who perhaps have gone through this struggle know how painful and difficult this is, but in this culture and in this day, it was actually considered a curse if a woman could not give birth to a child, namely a son. 
Because the way God grew his kingdom and the way God was going to bring about salvation for his kingdom was through the lineage of one of these Israelite boys. So as a woman and as a wife, your whole reason for existing, your center of joy, the place where you found meaning was in having a child. So if you were married and you were unable to give birth, you see over and over in the Bible, this was a source of severe pain. This was a source of severe depression, severe anxiety, severe hurt. And maybe you've been there. And that's the struggle that we see Hannah having in verse 2. The nature of this struggle is one that's relatable. If this is not a struggle that you can relate to, perhaps you know the struggle of unmet dreams and unfulfilled expectations. Perhaps you know the struggle of feeling like your purpose as a Christian or as a man or as a woman has gone unmet that your opportunities have passed you by, that your bad choices have caught up with you or the bad choices of somebody else close to you have impacted you to the place where now you don't have a purpose in life. You don't have a direction you're headed. You don't have something on the horizon that you're looking forward to. If that's you or if that's ever been you, then you can relate to the nature of this struggle. And in fact, tonight, my three points are going to be related to the relationships of the struggles that we deal with. Because truly, most of us fashion our worldview, most of us fashion our worldview out of painful circumstances and what we do with them. If you want to know who somebody truly is, don't find them on the mountaintop, because everybody looks the same on the mountaintop. If you want to know the true nature of a man or the true nature of a woman, find them in their struggle and see how they respond to it. That is the true nature of a person. Hannah was a woman who understood that it was God's plan and God's desire to bless the families of Israel with children, and yet she found herself childless. This struggle was very personal for her. Her relationship to this struggle was frustration it was guilt, it was anxiety, it was worry, and it drove her into isolation. And you're going to see that in the story. If you've been in this place, you can relate to Hannah, and I believe we all can. In verse 3, it says, Year after year, this man, speaking of Elkanah, her husband, went up from this town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. And whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice... He would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. So see the picture. Once a year, and we get the indication from this story that Hannah and Elkanah had been married for several years at this point. We don't know how many years, but the Bible says that year after year, they would travel to a town called Shiloh. And when they would travel to this town called Shiloh, they would go to the temple or they would go to the church building, like something like what we're in tonight, and they would do what was customary for Jewish people. They would sacrifice an animal and that they would eat the meat of this sacrifice. And it sounds like that every time, year after year, this would happen, that Elkanah, out of his pity for his childless wife, would give her double the portion that he gave everyone else as he was handing this out. Now, we've looked at the relationship of struggle within ourselves, but church isn't so much of the experience with our struggles also dependent upon how everybody else gets involved with it. If you've ever gone through difficult times, what you'll find is that there is always somebody there with an opinion or with a thought that they're happy to share with you. Alistair Begg said it this way. He said that there is never a shortage of Job's friends ready to give unasked for advice. 
I believe if you are a well-meaning but perhaps dense husband like I believe Elkanah was, or maybe I've been on multiple occasions, you can sort of understand why he would do this. In her struggle and in her isolation as she sat there at the table alone with no children while she looked across the table and saw the blessing of the other person that she so envied, the other person that had fulfilled her husband's desires while she failed to do so herself. You can imagine how she felt sitting at the table, and yet in his pity for her, he would give her a double portion. Now my guess, and it doesn't say so clearly, but my guess is is that that actually made the hurt go a little deeper. That made the hurt go a little deeper because as he gave her all this food, she looked and realized there was nobody to help her eat it because she was alone. She was alone in this struggle. And even her husband did not appear to know exactly how to make her feel better. And we find out a little later that it gets worse in that case. Look what it says in verse 7. This went on year after year. In verse 6 it said that her rival, Penina, this other wife of her husband, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year, and whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. And this happened year after year. They say that time is the great healer, but those of us who have been hurt know that pain turned inward gets worse over time. Time does not heal that hurt. Amen? Maybe tonight you're dealing with some hurts in your life that year after year you sit around the same table feeling the same feelings, understanding that nobody around you truly understands your struggle or can relate to your struggle. The truth is, time will not make that better. Time is not the great healer. In verse 8, it says, Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now we figure out this was a husband who really wanted to help out, but he didn't know exactly what to say. Husbands, it's, it's Mother's Day weekend, so we'll talk for a second. I was about three or four years into my marriage before I figured out that when my wife was sharing with me her troubles, she didn't want me to fix them. Anybody with me? Maybe you haven't realized that yet. But my wife would come home and she would share with me everything that was going on in her life and I was very quick to give her advice and I was very quick to tell her how to fix it and I was very quick to tell her what to say and how to deal with it. And what I found out pretty quickly was that she didn't actually want the solution, she just wanted somebody who listened and understood. If that's all you get this weekend, men, you will have done well. If that's all you take with you, You can ask at the very beginning of the conversation, is this a fix-it conversation or is this a listen and support conversation? Nine times out of ten, it's a listen and support conversation. Hannah needed somebody who understood where she was and how she was feeling, but her husband instead said, listen, you don't need sons, you got me. And it worked out real well. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, we know that Hannah was a godly woman because she didn't slap him. Because truth is, if she had answered honestly, she would have said, no, you're not worth ten sons. I'm not sure you're worth one husband. Aren't I worth more to you than ten sons? That's the wrong thing to ask. If your wife's ever upset, don't tell her, well, hey, baby, at least you got me. That's not going to fix the issue. But that's what he tried to do. So you can understand how alone she felt in this struggle. In verse 9, 
In verse 9, it says, Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. So at this point, Hannah has been sort of put in the spotlight at the table, sitting alone with no children, a reminder of her situation and a reminder of her pain. And if you've got a painful spot in your life, aren't there those places you go in life that always remind you of your pain? You drive through your old neighborhood when you were a kid. Maybe you drive by the house where you grew up. Maybe you drive by the school you went to, and some of those feelings come flooding back. Every year, that's what she was dealing with. And her husband didn't quite know how to fix the problem, didn't quite know what to do about it. So she decided to do what many of us have done. In fact, she decided to do what all of us have done tonight. She decided, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to go to the church, and I'm going to pray about this. Now, we can assume that even when things get tough at home, if we go to the church, everything gets better. Amen? Some of y'all are nodding your head, and some of y'all are like, no, nah, I've seen some things at church, so have I. We would hope that at church, all of the problems would be well understood and could be dealt with and could be addressed in a helpful manner. But the truth is, when she gets to the church, what she finds in verse 9 is that Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. And isn't that just like the pastor to just be sitting there at the doorpost? By the way, by the way happy birthday, Pastor Brian. Let's give Pastor Brian... 60 looks good on you, Pastor. You look fantastic. He's not 60 yet. I actually don't know how old he is. He ain't telling either. So just assume 60 unless he wants to correct us, okay? So the preacher's sitting there, and in her deep anguish in verse 10, it says that Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. She was invoking what you can find in Numbers chapter 6. It was called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was a vow that young men would take. And during this time of this vow, they wouldn't cut their hair, and they would do this as a time to dedicate to the Lord. But the thing about the Nazarite vow is that there was, a, there was an end to this vow. There was an end to the time period. It wasn't necessarily a lifelong vow. But Hannah said, Lord, if you will remember me and hear my anguish and hear my prayer, I will dedicate this child to you and for all his life he'll serve you. For all his life he'll serve you. And here's really where we find the meat of the message tonight for any of us, but especially mothers who have struggled. Hannah understood something that all faithful mothers, I think, understand. And if you're struggling tonight, whether it be struggling in motherhood or struggling for motherhood, you wish you could be a mother, but you can't, or maybe your struggle is something altogether different, but you're wondering at what point God's going to look down and give you an answer, Hannah understood something in this prayer that I think is transformational that maybe we can take with us tonight and we can take to the altar and we can pray. She understood, she understood that being a mother was not about her. And it wasn't about her getting her wish fulfilled. Because think about this for a second. 
She prayed, God, please give me a son. And if all she had prayed was, God, I'm in anguish. God, I've wanted this for so long. God, I believe this is your will for me. God, you've given other people children. God, Panina's got kids. I see all these other families with kids. God, I just pray you give me a son. Nobody would blame her for just praying that and saying, thank you, Lord, amen. And she would have walked, gotten up, walked away, and everybody would have said, yeah, that's exactly what we would pray. But what she prayed was interesting because if God said yes to this prayer, the result is that she would be giving this kid right back to the Lord. So the question then becomes, Hannah, if God answers your prayer, this isn't necessarily going to fix your problem. How are you going to feel different if you get a son, but then you have to give that son right back to the Lord? I believe if she could answer us tonight, here's what she'd tell us. She understood something that many of you mothers in the room tonight that have given your lives to parent your children, she understood that if you're going to be a faithful mother, it's about that child and it's about that child's relationship with God. If we give our children every blessing the world has to offer, and they go to the best schools, and they have the nicest things, and they grow up with the best education, and they have material success, and they have influence, and they have power, but they have no relationship with God, what have we given them? We've given them nothing. And you say, well, listen, as a parent, and some of you parents will understand this, in fact, I think all parents will understand this. To give your children what God wants for them will take everything you've got and then a little extra. To give kids the overflow of what God has already given you financially is easy. They're going to take it whether you want to give it to them or not. They're going to eat more food than you can afford. They're going to do more sports than you can possibly get them to. They're going to take all your money anyway. But the truth is, when it comes to giving them what they need spiritually, it will take everything you've got. And the second that it becomes about me as a parent is the second that the focus is off what it should truly be about, which is getting that kid to the foot of the cross. The truth is, Hannah understood that even though she was in pain for what she had not yet been given, her goal here was not for herself to be fulfilled. Her goal was that the kingdom of God would be fulfilled and that she could be a part of what God was doing. You see, I didn't mention at the beginning of this message, and little did Hannah know, I believe, what God was doing. If you look in the Bible... At the end of the book of Judges, right before this book starts, you've got Ruth right after Judges. Ruth kind of takes place in its own time period. But right after the book of Judges, in Judges 21-25, it says this, right before we start in the book of 1 Samuel, it says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what he thought was right in his own eyes. Church, they lived in a time that I believe we can relate to today. In Israel at this time, that Hannah was praying that God would give her a son, the truth is that in the land in which she lived, people were living with no authority. They were living with no leadership. They were living outside of the will of God, and there was nobody to tell them how to live correctly. Now, what Hannah prayed for was that God would give her a son that she could dedicate back to the Lord. Little did she know that in her prayer for God to do this one little thing for her, she was actually praying that he would bring about a man who would ordain the king of Israel. You see, little do we know 
When we go to our knees in prayer for what anguishes us, we don't know if God may not be listening and planning to do something that is bigger than just us. Amen? You see, there's something that happens in the life of the church. And we see this over and over. And if you've ever worked in ministry, you've seen this before. There are people within the body of Christ who tend to deal with the same ongoing issue on a recurring basis. And it seems like day after day, month after month, year after year, it's the same thing that they've got going on. Now, as a pastor, it's always a privilege to be able to pray with somebody and to listen and hear what God's got going on in somebody's life and to try to help them and come alongside with it. But the truth is, there are times when people may go three, five, ten years and they wonder when God is ever going to answer this prayer, when God is ever going to fix this situation, when God is ever going to heal the brokenness. And it seems insane that a loving God would wait so long to bring about what would be a good thing. But the truth is, in Hannah's situation, she had no idea that God was about to step into her life and use her struggle to bring about a man who would put the leadership in Israel in place. You see, when we struggle and God doesn't give us reprieve, we have to believe one of two things. Either A, God doesn't know, or B, God does know and he's got a plan that's bigger than what we see. And perhaps in his plan, what he has planned isn't something that can be solved in a day. But Hannah didn't know this yet. You see, we've talked about our relationship to the struggle, and we've talked about others' relationships to the struggles, how people fail to understand, and people often try to give us advice, but we often walk away, and we don't feel any better. But yet, here we find that God's relationship to my struggle is what's most important. Hannah's theology, what Hannah believed about God, was extremely important because Hannah had a worldview and a theology that understood that God is in control of our circumstances. Amen? Amen. Hannah understood that her inability to have a child was not something that God was ignorant of, and it's not something that God was powerless to fix. Now, we all believe that Hannah was correct, amen, that Hannah had the correct worldview, right? But here's the truth about that. When we think about God's relationship to my struggle, and we see a picture of Hannah's struggle, but you can put yourself here in whatever you're dealing with. If you and I believe that God is able to fix our struggle, and that God is in control of the circumstances by which I exist within this struggle, then we have to assume that either God doesn't want to fix it, or God has a bigger plan that we can't see yet. And that's a hard thing to deal with because when you're in pain, what we want is for God to just step in and fix it. When your marriage is a mess, God, I want you to fix it. When your children have gone wayward, God, I just want you to fix it. When your finances are a mess, God, I just want you to fix it. When your job gets lost, God, I just want you to give me another job. God, whatever it is we're dealing with, we just want God to come in and fix it. And when God doesn't come in and fix it, many of us go to this place mentally where we say, well, listen, maybe it's just outside of God's control. Maybe he can't fix it. Maybe God doesn't have the authority or the ability to just come in and fix my problem. Or maybe we say this, maybe we say God isn't aware, but the truth is God is aware and God does have the ability to fix it. But when he doesn't, this often turns into anger against God. When we go through our struggle and we go to our knees and we say, God, here I am again with the same old problem, 
and we walk away with the same old problem we went to our knees with, it's very easy for that anxiety and that fear and for that worry turned inward to turn outward towards God in the form of anger. It's very easy to be angry at God. And most people who have a desire to please the Lord and have a desire to be a good Christian person, like the people gathered in this room tonight, most of us know that we shouldn't speak out loud and say, God, I'm angry at you, and God, I'm mad at you. But the truth is, many of us may be in that place where we're in that same old struggle, and we're just like, God, what's taking so long? Have you forgotten me down here? God, the same old thing is still going on, and I'm still in the same old mess. But when we see Hannah's prayer, she didn't pray that way. She didn't pray that God would rain down fire and brimstone on Penina. She didn't pray that God would get off of his rocker and do something. She prayed that God would bless her so that she could in turn give back to God. And God was about to step in. And do something extraordinary in an ordinary circumstance. It says as she kept on praying to the Lord in verse 12. Eli observed her mouth. And Hannah was praying in her heart. And her lips were moving. But her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk. This is some severely misplaced pastoral wisdom here. She was praying. She was moving her lips. She was speaking in her heart. But she wasn't speaking out loud. And the pastor thought she was drunk. And he said to her in verse 14, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Now, if you've ever taken your struggles to the church and you felt like the pastor or the people there didn't understand you or they gave you bad advice, maybe you can relate to this. Can I tell you a story real quick? I was with my dad. My dad's not here. He's probably watching online. I was with my dad a couple days ago. We were working in Mayfield and we were eating at a restaurant there and if you know my dad, you know that he will witness to, he doesn't witness to everybody, you have to have a pulse, but if you've got a pulse, he'll witness to you. And the lady that was working at this restaurant, he, he started talking to her, and I knew it was coming, I thought, man, he's about to get her, I can tell, he's about to get her. He introduced himself, he asked her her name, and I thought, lady, if you tell him your name, it's like a shark with blood in the water, he's going to smell it, and he's going to come after it. She told him his name, and he said, hey, I've got to ask you a question, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? And she said, well... Almost. I thought that was an interesting answer, almost. And tears welled up in her eyes, and he said, almost? What, what do you mean, almost? And she said, well, when I was young, and I'm guessing this lady was in at least her mid-40s, if not a little older. She said, when I was young, a young man that I was fond of and I wanted to get married, he was in the military and he was fixing to move off, but we wanted to get married, so we came to the church. She said she was a Catholic, and she came to the church, and she talked to the priest and asked the priest if he would marry them, and the priest refused to do so. And she said, from that moment, when that priest told me no, it broke my heart, and I've never been back to church since. And I thought, my goodness, to run from God for 20 years because a pastor or a priest offended you. And we started asking her questions, and it's like, well, what, what does this have to do with God? Well, not much of anything, but when you're hurting, it's easy to turn that towards God, isn't it? It's easy to take that anger and turn it towards God, and that's what she had done. That's what she had done, but Hannah wasn't doing that. And yet here in this situation, as Hannah pours her heart out to God, the preacher asks her if she's drunk and how long she's going to stay drunk and put away your wine and listen to what she says in verse 15 not so my lord hannah replied i'm a woman who is deeply troubled i have not been drinking wine or beer she had to specify i was pouring out my soul to the lord 
Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And she said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. And that's where the story ends in chapter 1. Now what we know is that in chapter 2, she gives birth to a young man. His name is Samuel, and she brings him back. After the child was weaned, she brings him back to the church, and she leaves him there. And that young man grew up outside of her home in the church for Eli, and God used him. And God raised him up to be the judge of Israel that would ultimately ordain both King Saul and King David. And Israel would see some of its greatest times through Samuel's leadership. But at this point, God had not said yes to her prayer. Do you notice that? At this point, she's praying. The pastor assumes that she's drunk. The pastor accuses her of being drunk. She said, no, I'm not drunk. I'm actually pouring out my heart to the Lord because I'm praying for a child. And then the priest says, listen, may God find favor on you. And she got up, and she left, and she was happy, and she was smiling, and she was able to start eating again. Now, what in the world is the moral of the story? The moral of the story is this. She had faith that God had heard her, and that was enough for her. Because she had faith that God's plan was bigger than her pain. Let me say that again because that's all this is about tonight. She had faith that God's plan was bigger than her pain. Now what does that mean for us and what does that mean for you? Here's what it means. If you have prayed for God to bless you in a way that you feel and know is biblical and is right and would be within the will of God, remember that the book of James, Jesus' own brother, said it this way. When we pray, we must ask God and we ask without doubting because the one who prays in doubt shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. We find in uh, the book of John that Jesus himself said, if you pray anything in my name, I will give it to you. And yet often we pray and we pray and we don't get the answer and we wonder why that is. The answer is either God doesn't care or is unable or that God has a plan and his plan will sustain me through my pain. And if God's plan can sustain you through your pain, what you'll find is that just like Hannah who I'm sure was very aware of Samuel's upbringing and what God used him to do. If you can pray like Hannah, praying that God would bless you in your struggle, even if it means we don't get the fulfillment that we seek, but we make it about the kingdom of God, I believe that's what praying in Jesus' name actually means. When Jesus said, you pray anything in my name, I'll grant it, here's what it means. It means that when we pray like this, God, I'm hurting and I need you to fix my hurt. That's not in his name. That's my name. God, I'm hurting. I need you to fix my hurt. When we pray this way, God, you fix my hurt and my life will be all about you poured out to you. I think that's the business God is in. Now, will that automatically mean that God instantly answers the prayer? It doesn't mean that. It would be great if it meant that, but the truth is we don't know how God's going to answer it, but neither did Hannah, and yet she got up and her countenance had changed because God had heard her prayer, and she had faith that God could do more than she could see or even imagine, and that's exactly what God did. In this room tonight, there are Christians who have gone through some difficult things, and here's here's the action step. Here's where I want to encourage you tonight. If you're struggling, and you're in the pit, you're in the middle of that struggle, and you wonder, is God not hearing me? 
Does God not want to say yes to me? Does God not want to bless me? Does God not want to answer this prayer? Take it from some of the Christians in the room who have spent years in the struggle that on the other side of it look back and say, hey, I see what God was doing. God will sustain you in your struggle, but that sustaining has to be seeking God's plan and not just repeat reprieve for our pain. It's got to be seeking after the will of the Lord. And there is no greater picture of this than in raising children. Mothers, fathers, dedicate those children to the Lord. Don't bring them to the church and leave them. We're going to find out where you live and we're going to send them right back, okay? But dedicate those children to the Lord. The people that are coming into this church building day after day, week after week with all these kids, believe it or not, they're not doing it because it's easy. And they're not doing it because it's fulfilling. And in fact, for you mothers, because it's Mother's Day weekend and because this story is about a mother, I want to focus on you for a second. Statistics say that mothers tend to struggle more with depression and anxiety than single women or any type of man, just about, which is typical of men, right? We don't, whatever, we can go to bed, doesn't matter. But mothers tend to struggle with that. Stay-at-home moms tend to struggle with it even more. And in fact, motherhood is often marked by the sense that nobody sees me in my struggle. When you're a mother, you don't get vacation days. You don't get paid time off. You don't get weekends to put your feet up and relax. It is a 24-7, 365 job. Amen? There is no break from being a parent or from being a mother and what Satan wants you to believe and this is just as true for fathers what Satan wants you to believe is that you're giving all of you all of your life and spirit and soul into that child to raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord it's hard it's hard to be at church every time the doors are open. It's hard to be faithful in giving. It's hard to pray with them every single night, especially when their bedrooms are all the way upstairs like they are in my house. I'm winded by the time I get there. Then I have to pray with them. And we've got all of our little rituals that we have to do. And at the end of the night, as a parent, you feel wrung out and you feel exhausted. And you think... And I believe with all my heart, and I'm going to believe this and claim this promise, when they turn 18, they're gone and they don't come back. That's what I want to believe. That's what I want to believe. But I've seen far too many times that the older they get, the struggles don't get easier. They just get different. And sometimes I wonder, when do I get to retire? And the truth is, as a parent and as a mother, there is no retirement age. This is a lifelong job. It doesn't pay very well. In fact, it'll cost you everything. And it's easy to wonder, as a parent, as we struggle, does God see me? Does God care? And the truth is, you don't know if you're not raising up a young man or a young woman that's going to help us turn this generation around. You don't know, just like Hannah didn't know, God, give me a child and I'll give that child back to you. When you pray that prayer and you make it about God and you make it about that child and not about the you and not about the me, we don't know if when we look around the world that we live in today and we say, man, America looks like a place where there is no authority, there is no leadership, there is no morality, and everybody just does whatever they think is right, just like that day in Israel, when we fail as 
parents to make it about what God can do through that child. And we fail to raise them up and we put the focus on, oh, it's just hard. It's hard to be a mom. It's hard to be a dad. It's hard to be a Christian. When we put the focus on us, we're forgetting that what God's doing through you, it doesn't pay a lot of money. There's not a lot of prestige. You don't get to call yourself a CEO. You don't get a fancy title at the beginning or at the end of your name. But if you're the mother of a Christian man or a Christian woman or children that you're raising up in the Lord, you are doing the work that only God can do through you to raise up a faithful generation. Church, we're doing what we're doing in this church, and we're doing what we do with our children because we don't believe that God's done with Metropolis. We don't believe God's done with Metropolis. We don't believe God's done here. If he was done here, he would have already wiped us out. But God doesn't do that because he's long-suffering. And the Bible says that he's patient and he's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And when I raise my kids up and I understand, all right, my kids are going to be Christians in Metropolis. And as they get older, they're going to become men and women in Metropolis. They're going to go out into a place where God is willing and able to use them. And God is willing and able to use them, and he's going to use you to teach them how to do it. Mothers, what you do matters. It matters maybe more deeply than anything else we do in this life. Fathers, what we do matters. And if you don't have children, we have a church full of kids that need you. We have a church full of kids and a community full of kids that need your wisdom and they need your experience and they need your guidance and they need your prayers. As a church, here's my call tonight and I'll be done. As a church, here's my challenge. When we have an opportunity to go before God and pray, let's be honest about our struggles and let's give them to the Lord and let's make them about Him. God, what do you want to do with the pain that I'm living with? God, my situation that doesn't look right to me, what do you want to do with it? God, you act in my situation, you act in my hurt, and I'll give it all back to you. And church, I don't believe there's any limit to what God can do and will do in a church that is honest with God, honest with each other, and willing to do it for him and through him and about him. Amen? Y'all receive the word tonight.